Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to another edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, those of you happening across our podcast and broadcast for the very first time, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And uh, we mean that quite literally. If you have questions about the Bible, uh, perhaps you'd like a biblical perspective on the events of the day or even the events of tomorrow through biblical prophecy, maybe a verse or two you'd like to explore in a little bit more up close and personal way, how to apply God's Word to the challenges that you're facing currently. And uh, perhaps you've been asked a tough question or have always wanted to ask a tough question regarding faith in the Bible as God's divinely inspired word. We are more than happy, in fact, delighted to take those questions on. Uh, Just get in touch with us. Uh, Remember, uh, only one standard for our questions here on A Reason for Hope. Just make sure that it's a sincere question, and if you are looking for an answer straight from the Bible, we'll be happy to provide it. Join here, as always, by my right-hand man, protege, all-around good guy, Sean Richards. Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, if you'd like to email us, questionsforhope at gmail.com is the first place you can engage, and note that is questions, plural, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com. If you need clarification on spelling, you can join us on any of our websites. Our website is proper. I guess notification on that would be calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to our page where we are streaming five days a week from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. At the bottom of the screen, you'll see a banner that lists our email address for you to use at any time for sending us your Bible questions. Also note, if you want to join us on social media, Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and A Reason for Hope is our YouTube page. If you want to give us a like or subscribe to us there, we'll be happy to receive your questions live and on the air, as well as on archive for previous broadcasts. But note, if we are, for whatever reason, not streaming there, either through technical malfunction or because the powers that be have decided they don't like what we have to say, you can still join us on our website website. We will be sure to stay live there. They can't block us on our own platform yet. We, of course, welcome your questions. We just want to make sure that they are, in fact, questions, that they are sincere, and that they are about the Bible. If you meet those, excuse me, if you meet those criteria, we will be happy to provide answers to your questions and to very, very interesting questions we've been sent along that we want to give all due time and respect to, as well as a prophecy update, a little follow-through on the Islamic Jihad taking place in Israel over the weekend, but before we even get into that, we want to make sure we are prayed up. So why don't we do that? Uh, We will do that. Father, I thank you so much that we can bring this broadcast before you. And Lord, unless uh, you speak, unless your word is honored here, we are spinning our wheels 
But I uh, thank you, Lord, that you are here to take your word. And as you promised, it's not going to return to you void. It's always going to accomplish what you sent it out to do. And so, Lord, I pray that people would be edified during this time. They would have their knowledge of your word deepened in a very consistent way. I pray they'd be exhorted. Lord, they wouldn't just become spiritually, uh, uh, intellectually informed, but uh, able to take those principles and uh, the, the precepts that we talk about on the broadcast here and apply them to your to their lives. Lord, I pray that you would also bring comfort to your people because, Lord, apart from you, uh, we can do nothing. So we want to abide in you, the living vine, and look forward to how you're going to take this broadcast and where it's going to go. We give you this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, again, just as a quick recap, last weekend, what was happening and what is now happening? Yeah, as uh, we signed off on Friday, uh, the uh, friendly folks at Islamic Jihad in Gaza uh, had uh, conducted a uh, major uh, series of missile salvos against Israel. Now, this was uh, in response to an Israeli operation that uh, was a little bit different than the tactics that Israel has traditionally used uh, in its uh, continuing struggle with uh, the uh, Palestinian terrorists that surround them. Now, normally, what Israel has done is uh, they've waited for a provocative attack from the Palestinians and responded accordingly. Apparently, Islamic Jihad, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Mad Mullahs in Tehran, Iran, uh, had uh, decided to do a major operation that included uh, a sophisticated plan to kidnap a number of Israeli citizens from uh, the cities that uh, are just outside of what is known as the Gaza Strip, Sederot, and other cities like this. Uh, Israel intervened beforehand and uh, took out the head of Islamic Jihad. Over the weekend, there have, were missile exchanges that took place. Uh, just a couple of things that uh, have happened there. First of all, uh, the Egyptian president, al-Sisi, uh, came in and moderated a ceasefire. Uh, the, as uh, we go to broadcast here today, there are no exchanges taking place. But uh, the aftermath is uh, pretty impressive. Apparently, a, a large swath of the Islamic Jihad leadership was taken out by Israel. The Iron Dome uh, defensive uh, system that Israel put in place to defend the Israeli uh, cities within missile range of Islamic uh, Jihad uh, worked very, very well. 97% of all the rockets launched were taken out by the Iron Dome. And uh, according to uh, the IDF, more individuals in Gaza ended up being uh, killed and wounded by Islamic Jihad rockets falling short of the borders of Gaza than any uh, collateral damage that had happened from um, Israeli um, Air Force attacks on uh, Islamic Jihad positions. Now, some people will bring up the, the question of, well, you know, didn't Israel hurt and harm some uh, innocent uh, civilians there? Well, that will formally apologize for them having accidentally shot the civilians that Hamas was hiding behind. Now yeah. let's get back to the real villain. Yeah, uh, that's uh, essentially what their tactic is. Uh, they set up missile launchers in uh, uh, kindergartens and things along this line. And uh, what you're going to probably see over the next couple of days is the usual uh, public relations offensive that follows one of these exchanges. Uh, there's going to be uh, pictures that are going to be released of uh, sad casualties uh, among the uh, Palestinians in Gaza. Be really careful as uh, you watch these images 
because uh, we've seen repeatedly that some of these images are recycled. In other words, um, Israeli uh, victims, especially children, are the exact same children shown as victims that supposedly were killed by the Israelis in Lebanon, some in Syria, some in Gaza, and so on. So, Of course, they have to be careful posting videos because in one of them, one of their victims under the body bags was told uh, not to get up too quickly, but he didn't listen. Those poor corpses, they have very poor stage directions. Yeah, I think it was an Al Jazeera report, and one of the the, uh, guys was crawling out of his body bag while the reporter was doing their thing. So there's going to be a propaganda war. Were there legitimate casualties? Absolutely. Why were there alleged, uh, there were there uh, casualties in this uh, particular go-around? Well, I was reading an interesting uh, article by Robert Spencer before airtime that points out that in the second surah of uh, the Quran, uh, there will be no possible peace between uh, a thoroughgoing uh, Islamic Uh, follower of the Quran and Israel in that they are dictated in that uh, to uh, absolutely, as their duty as faithful Muslims, to take back any territory they feel has been taken from them uh, by any of their enemies. Now, Drive them out from which they drove you out. They right. deem the secession, basically, of the Ottoman Empire to be the loss of Islamic lands and an insult on par with Muhammad being driven out of Mecca and needing to return that insult with conquest. And then any Islamic land they conquer from then on, including, by the way, Andalusia, which is known today as Spain, is also on that And parts of list. southern France, yeah. 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 Well, you know, suffice it to say, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Uh, We uh, also uh, got some questions that were sent along to us uh, about uh, the uh, news that was breaking about an FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, which is uh, Donald Trump's residence. Uh, Details as to the exact nature of this raid are sketchy at this point. Apparently, it had something to do with a dispute between uh, Donald Trump and uh, the FBI about uh, some documents uh, that uh, Donald Trump took with him uh, down to his uh, home in Florida. Uh, And uh, there was a negotiation going on about uh, taking these back. Apparently, the negotiations ended and uh, the FBI raided his home. Uh, You can read online what Donald Trump felt about all of that. Uh, But uh, as they say, it was almost like Uh, pouring coke on an anthill as far as Twitter was concerned, people just going berserk about this sort of thing. Uh, You know, the the big question that comes up in all of this is, you know, what are we to make of of what is going on here? You know, I I, I think, and, you know, we don't get really political uh, here uh, on the broadcast, but I do think Uh, that what we're seeing in the United States, and this ties into our prophecy update here, is that we know prophetically that sooner or later this world is going to come under a one-world government. It's going to be instituted and headed up by an individual who's going to be received first as a great man of peace, uh, an incredible leader, a person who's going to bring economic prosperity to the entire world, The Bible says that uh, the world is going to find out that he is, in fact, the Antichrist. Now, we believe that the Antichrist, as such, cannot uh, complete his plan of deception until we in the church 
are raptured out of here. Uh, the one who restrains, we are told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, will do so until he is taken out of the way. We believe that is the uh, restraining presence of the Holy Spirit uh, present in his people. Uh, every born-again believer in this world is salt and light in this world. Salt keeps things from uh, rotting out. It's an important preservative. Light keeps darkness at bay. But when the salt and light are removed, then this world is going to go downhill in a big-time hurry. You want to find out more about that? Come on out on Wednesday night and join us for our uh, study on the book of Revelation at our Oasis service. But suffice it to say, uh, although uh, people can get carried away and they'll say, is so-and-so the Antichrist or is, you know, uh, the vaccine the mark of the beast or, uh, you know, some development will come along and they will think that, uh, you know, the prophecies of the last days are being directly fulfilled. We need to be very restrained in terms of uh, jumping into these sort of things. But I think we can say uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt, just as Israel is back in the land, huge development, just as the coalition of nations uh, that we see described in Ezekiel chapter 38, which will one day invade Israel during this tribulation period, is now coming together in an unprecedented way. Russia, Iran, uh, Turkey, the uh, Central Asiatic Muslim republics, and so forth. Uh, we, we see the, the stage being set, and uh, you know the, the question always comes up, well, uh, if there's going to be a one-world government and we're all going to be under one leadership, uh, what about uh, particular nations that tend to be quite proud of their nation status, like the United States? What is going to happen to us? Well, there's three main theories about where the United States is in biblical prophecy, and it's all based upon one truth you can take to the bank. Uh, the United States is not directly mentioned in any last days and end times scenario. Now, by directly, this is what I mean. Uh, the whole world is going to follow the beast. We are told that all the nations are going to cooperate with him at one point, and that will probably include in some way, shape, or form the United States. But as far as any direct prophecies about the United States, I know there's been best-selling books written on this, but really they are stretches and very uh, esoteric and oblique uh, interpretations of uh, passages taken out of context. And people will ask, okay, so where is the United States in biblical prophecy? Well, if we're not mentioned, then uh, one of three possibilities exists. Some believe that the United States, as it's constituted right now, is not going to be on the scene because somehow we're taken out in some form of limited war. Uh, our good friend Joel Rosenberg wrote a thriller based upon that uh, prospect of the United States and North Korea getting involved uh, with a limited nuclear war, and that's what removed the United States from the scene. Spoiler alert if you haven't read uh, the uh, political fictional thriller that he wrote. Uh, and some believe that, that that's going to happen. Others believe that the United States uh, is going to be so uh, decimated by the rapture of the church. According to Barna, we are fond of reminding you of this, there's at least some 54 million, with an M, professing born-again believers in this nation. Well, if suddenly 54 million people vanished from the United States, imagine the economic and governmental and societal impact. Uh, the United States, I think, more than a lot of nations would be directly impacted by that. And so I'd like to think that that's why we aren't mentioned in prophecy. The United States is going to be so economically and militarily and governmentally gutted, it's going to be kind of an also-ran. It's just going to be another pawn under the control of the Antichrist. 
But there's another possibility that the United States is simply going to continue to go downhill morally and, uh, and governmentally, spiritually, uh, just like Great Britain at one point uh, dominated the world. Uh, the saying used to be, the sun never sets on the British Empire. But uh, because of uh, two world wars and because of a lack of desire among the people to keep their status as uh, the, uh, the head of the British Empire, uh, the British Empire broke up. Uh, Britain went from being the dominant uh, power in the world uh, to an also-ran. And uh, that's pretty much where they stand today. The United States may be going that same direction. And when we see things like uh, just a- an incredible erosion, almost systematically, of uh, the foundations of our nation, the things about our nation that we used to be confident in, it uh, wouldn't surprise me if this sort of divisiveness, this sort of uh, lack of confidence in government, in, uh, say, uh, 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 medicine, in uh, even uh, the idea of uh, the things that used to bind us together, like sports and entertainment, very divisive stuff right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, it reminds me of a uh, passage in Psalm 11 uh, that says, uh, the Lord, uh, again, uh, how can you say, in the Lord I put my trust, how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, that's the big question living in times like these. What are we, as those who belong to God, supposed to do under these sets of circumstances? Well, I love what the rest of Psalm 11 says. It says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyes test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who hates violence, his soul hates Upon the wicked he'll rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. You know, the thing that I love about this is it tells me something. God is going to be very good about judging the wicked. He knows, and it talks about his eyelids testing the righteous, that that he looks from heaven. He he sees all the sons of men, uh, we are told in in, uh, the Scripture. And uh, God is going to be very, very good about bringing judgment when it's necessary. Now, he doesn't need me to jump on the judgment train and uh, spend my emotional energy being angry at people who say political takes and so on I happen to disagree with. But he does say to keep my eyes on him. He does say that we have confidence that the Lord is going to Uh, work all of these things out. Now, when I look at the foundations of our nation, the things that we used to take for granted, uh, a Judeo-Christian worldview, uh, a consensus that uh, there was such a thing as absolute right and absolute wrong, uh, the idea that you could send your kids to school and not and know that they were uh, not going to find out what the teacher's political and moral opinions or even personal life were all about. They were there to read, uh, get uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic, if you will. Um, we see this lack of confidence coming in. And if you look too much at the horizontal, can I exhort you? You're going to get discouraged. It is going to be a bummer. But if we can, for every moment we spend online on the Internet, or every moment that we spend, say, uh, reading our our favorite news sites or or watching the news on TV, 
For every moment we do that, we spend a moment in God's Word and allow His Word to renew our hearts and allow uh, our heart to communicate with God through prayer and make it our business to come alongside others who are feeling, you know, kind of shaky and and uh, and frightened, and to tell them, hey, we don't need to fear. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Then I think we're really going to be doing a service in this world. You know, it's one thing to criticize what's going on. There's no doubt about that. There's a lot of critics out there, and some of their criticisms are valid. But, uh, you know, there's an old saying, Sean, no one ever built a statue in honor of critics. Um, they build statues in honors of people that actually do something in this world. So what better thing can we be doing as we anticipate the Lord's return, as we await for Him to come, than to be about the business of praying, casting our hearts on, on the Lord, casting our cares on Him, asking Him to fill us with the Spirit, and reaching out with that love to encourage others. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's so, pretty much the cap of it. Yeah. So let us know if that's uh, all, I guess, edifying for those of you listening and getting out to your questions now. This first one is a very fun one, sent along to us from Yari, essentially passing on an article. It was written by someone who's not worth the time, but uh, this is nothing new. The individual basically just rehashes a bunch of what we would refer to as oneness Pentecostal and prosperity gospel propaganda. Interestingly enough... Okay, could you explain to us what oneness uh, Pentecostalism is? Oneness Pentecostalism is a non-Christian cult. People who adhere to its doctrines fully and sincerely are not saved. I will say that without fear of contradiction or controversy, or welcome it, rather, if you will. But the point of emphasis is they would deny of the four things that we can't disagree on as far as what it means to be a Christian. They would deny salvation by grace through faith because of the rejection of the means by which that was accomplished. They would deny the Trinity, claiming that either Jesus only or God the Father only is God, that there are no persons within the one being that is God. They deny the Trinity. And, of course, they would deny the authority of Scripture and noting personal experience as an authority over it. They wouldn't admit that out front, but you see how they read and handle the Bible and it becomes very clear. They had a vision, in other words, that allowed them to come to their biblical conclusions. Or they're taking the word of someone who claimed the same. So of all the four things, the only thing that would even vaguely associate them with Jesus, they would claim that Jesus is who he claimed to be. The problem is they mean something different in what he claimed to be, and they don't believe in the source of which we have those claims recorded for us. Yeah, so and I guess maybe that's the point of confusion, is you run into a, a, a oneness Pentecostal or a Jesus-only, Pentecostal, and uh, you'll say, oh, you believe Jesus is God? Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe that, but they don't tell you the other stuff. No, and much like talking with Mormons, you need to bring your dictionary, because those are different words. Yeah. Uh, But the point being made is, interestingly enough, he was asked about Jehovah's Witnesses, and in all charity to his fellow heretics, uh, he tried to basically just say, oh, they're on their own journey to knowledge, and they get these things wrong, but it's not important when both are, in fact, headed to hell. So uh, the whole point of his (laughs) article— Say what you really think, Sean. (laughs) Oh, I can be much more blunt, but we're on the radio. Uh, The point being made, though, is when he's making these arguments, and I'll just read a few sections before we get to something of substance, uh, just watch how this looks ultimately when he's asked the question about the Jehovah's Witnesses' claim of henotheism, that there isn't one God, there's many gods, but one God that we focus our attention on, that for them would be Jehovah, that Jesus is a created being, Michael the Archangel, is a status like a God, but lowercase g. That would be henotheism, others 
like Michael Heiser and others also espouse this. So when we read these sort of claims, uh, let's just look at maybe something we could disagree on agreeably. Uh, in thinking of God as quote-unquote persons, that I disagree with your assessment. The word was not, all caps, a person, but was God when speaking the universe into existence. As John wrote, in the beginning the word was, all caps, God. Melchizedek was God. As the priest of Salem, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, then he quotes out of context, Hebrews 7.3, without father, mother, without genealogy, without being a beginning or days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, there are people who would emphasize Melchizedek as an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. We disagree. Yeah, we don't really take that because of that key word. He was like the Son of God. But no, this would yeah. be a secondary issue. Yeah. He brings this up as if it somehow verifies this butchering of John 1.1, 1, 1, but we'll continue but, on. But that's not even a proof text for the idea that Melchizedek was God. Yeah. He was like God. He wasn't God. But he yeah. goes on to say, when God became the Father of Jesus, Jesus was not God, but was the Son of God. He learned firsthand what it was like to be a mortal human being. When Jesus fulfilled his mission, living a perfect life, and of his own free will giving his life for us, he was born again. And the aspect of God that had been the Logos, so he's contradicted himself now, was the first person to become a member of God's family. So we can tell where he spends his Sunday mornings on uh, TVN and Kenneth Copeland station. Yeah. But the point being made is, and this is the only real thing of substance here, before Jesus there was only God, no matter what aspect of him we hear or read about. As a human being, Jesus was capable of sinning. God cannot sin, but he did not sin. I'm glad you agree Jesus is God. Uh, he had to live this life without sin to fulfill his mission, and he did. After Jesus' resurrection, he became God, having been given, quote, all power in heaven and in earth, Matthew 28, 18. Man, I wish he had read John 18 and 17, and he would have uh, spared himself a lot of false doctrine. But he says he will relinquish that power when he has completed God's plan for salvation of mankind. Here's where we get to the crux of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, this is the NIV 1984 version, he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, uh, to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. So pausing there at verse 24, this is where he concludes Jesus will cease to be God because all the power, kingdom, and dominion that was given to him in Philippians 2 will then cease to be, thus he'll cease to be God. I wonder if Micah 5.2 fits into this, but let's keep reading. Well, that, it's an interesting definition of God to start with because if you're God... You're all-powerful, right? Right. If you're God, you're all-knowing, right? Right. But if you're God, you're also all-existing. You have no beginning or end. And, no, and yet his definition of God has a beginning and an end. Yeah, so we'll continue on. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. So his emphasis is on verses 24 and 25, but 
with an issue we'll address in a moment. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he, quote, has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who will put everything under Christ. Who translated this? When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who has put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. So uh, apart from a sketchy passage here, this is his conclusion. Until Jesus was born again, not in the passage, there was only one God, not in the passage. Now there is the Father and the Son, and at the end, when the Son returns to establish his kingdom, there will be many gods, not in the passage, but God will remain all in all. So, essentially what we have here is, I guess, one heresy being answered for another, a deliberate false teaching that's deceiving people, there's no other way to put it. But in the presentation, I guess, that we're being given, where do you think, in or outside of the text, that we need to address this guy's error? Because apparently there are people who are following this guy's blog and know better off than if they were watching Kenneth Copeland or anyone else who would give him these kind of ideas. Well, first of all, we need to realize that uh, false teachers uh, that have a distorted view of Jesus uh, we are told uh, prophetically are going to wax worse and worse, and that in the last days there's going to be individuals that are going to heap up teachers according to their own desires because they have itching ears, they've turned aside from the truth. So the idea that false doctrine can do land office business, uh, even in our Internet age, is, is pretty key. But the, the main issue that we get into in all of this, don't you think, Sean, is a misunderstanding uh, and a redefinition of a key point in Christian doctrine, the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, where would you say this guy gets uh, off the, the boat as far as an understanding of what the biblical doctrine of the Trinity, what it is, and really what it isn't? Oh, pretty much allowing it to be a factor in the conversation. When we are talking about the Trinity and what this guy seems to be insisting upon is that only God the Father can be God, and that because he delegates all power and dominion and authority to Jesus, he then infers that to mean the only reason we call Jesus God is because God allows him to be doing that. But the problem with that interpretation is there are other passages of Scripture that make that impossible. For example, in the book of Isaiah, God very explicitly, or excuse me, Jeremiah, he notes explicitly that I am the Lord and I will not share my glory with another. Right. And that is an ongoing state of fact. So if someone is going to claim, well, Jesus became God, or Jesus is the Word of God, meaning that, and here's where you infer this without any support from the text, this is just what God spoke into existence, and what God spoke became flesh, and that's what we mean by Jesus. It's just the Father's words. Well, all well and good, but where is that in the passage? Where do we see that kind of handling of the text apart from you inferring it? So we need to make sure that when we are talking about the Trinity, first of all, we don't dismiss it out of hand any more than we should, and this is equally important, dismiss their claims out of hand. We need to make sure that the most biblical data is supported and that no biblical data is conflicted right. by these sort of claims, and this is where we need to basically settle our feet. What do we mean by the Trinity? Well, it's essentially a doctrine that acknowledges four key facts about Scripture, and feel free to ask further questions for more details if you need them. The first fact of the Trinity, in order for 
it to be a true doctrine is that there is one and only one God. That right. The beans and you're not out, him. Yeah. yeah. Of the beings that are out <laughs> Neither there. Neither are you. And yeah. make sure that we emphasize that term, beings that are God, that are classified as the greatest possible being, the one with power in a divine sense, not in a judge's sense, not in an angel's over a dominion or a principality sense. We mean the God of the world, of the universe, the creator, the one who can be attributed with the sort of things that are only true for God, that he's the creator, that he is eternal, that he is all-knowing, all-seeing, etc. That can only apply to one and only one being. We can read in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And we note the same in the New Testament, that they may know you, Jesus said, the only true God, this is eternal life, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. More on that in a moment. Yeah, Isaiah also has some pretty interesting things to say about that. Yeah, chapters 43 through 48 are a good start. But the point being made is that there is one and only one God in being. The second fact is that there are things that only God can truthfully say about himself and not be lying. I can say the words, I created the universe, but I would be lying or I would be God. There is only those two, there are those those two possibilities. So if someone were to claim to be the creator of the universe or the maintainer of life or to be involved in that process, they would either be God or they would be lying. Or if they attributed that to someone else, they would be lying because that only belongs to God. Right. So note that point. Only God created the heavens and the earth. Only God is the giver and maintainer of life. Only God knows everything. Only God can be everywhere. Then, the third fact, and this is key, that there are three persons, three titles, three uh, centers of consciousness. We'll clarify that again more in a second. But three names that are attributed to the sort of things only God can do. For example, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, God is identified as our Father and the Creator of Israel, its people, and everyone else for that matter. Right. In the book of Colossians, chapter 2, as well as, and I'm trying to think in the uh, Old Testament as well, because I just try to keep it up as a habit. Give me a moment. But uh, noting Jesus as the Creator as well, that through Him all things not only were, but consist, that all things were made through Him and for Him, that Jesus is also identified as the Creator. That would be God the Son. And the third person of the Trinity, of course, the third of these titles, I don't want to jump the gun quite yet, uh, is the Spirit, the Yahweh Rulach, if you will. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, it notes that the Spirit was the one that was brooding over the waters in this maintaining work of creation. Yeah. Then in Job chapter 33 and 34, he's noted as the one to whom not only all of creation exists, but continues to exist. If God were to remove his Spirit, then all would return to the dust. And we see this all attributed to the same one sitting on the throne in Revelation chapter 4. You're worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. We know that's talking about God, because only God can claim those sort of things. Right. Now, here's the fourth fact. Of the Father name, the Son name, and the Spirit name, all credited with creation, giver of life, etc., for some reason... They can also, these three titles, can also act independently from one another, that they have individual and unique capacities to not only send each other, but speak to one another and relate to one another. They're distinct, in other words. Isaiah 48 and verse 16 notes, God speaking, you've not not kept it secret, you've heard things of old, I have not, um, and I have spoken, and now the Lord God and his Spirit have sent me. We note in the uh, Hebrew specifically, but in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, when the Lord 
called down fire from the Lord on Sodom and Gomorrah. The text wasn't right. being redundant. Right. It was being specific. In the book of Exodus, when the elders were invited up to be with the Lord, the Lord told them, go up to the Lord, and so forth. We see in, again, we'll talk about this more on Wednesday, uh, the Lord speaking, come out of her, my people, for, and then it goes on to say, God has judged this nation, this Babylon, right. uh, uh, for your sakes. Right. It has been leveled out on her. So there's this distinction made between God, yet there is one God. So how do we harmonize this? Well, we recognize there's a difference between being and person, that if Jesus, God the Son, were to come to this world with all dominion, principality, and power, that would only make sense, because he's God. Now, if the Father gives that to him, is that a diminishing status? Well, no, because it puts him, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, as him being the one with the name that is above every name, right. <laughs> that the name of G uh, Jesus, every knee should bow, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord to yeah. the glory of God the Father. Yeah. Now, if this distinction between who's being glorified confuses you, understand that's where we have to fall back on fact number three. Why is Jesus not just referred to by the Father in ways that only God could appropriately apply him to. Anthony Buzzard and other heretics can make that point of emphasis. You have to then fall back and say, so why then does Jesus get credit for doing the things only God could have done? It's not because that right was given to him, that's an ontological status. That's a fact of their origin as well as their ongoing reality. And why I mentioned in passing Micah 5, 2 is because it identifies Jesus as something God can only be. The one who was born in Bethlehem didn't begin at that moment. His yeah, it, goings forth were from what? From old, from everlasting. Now, what's the uh, emphasis in that text? Well, the Hebrew there in, indicates the, it uses the word ha-holam, which is the strongest word in Hebrew you could use to indicate an eternal pre-existence. Pre-existence. So right. of all the people that could claim to have, quote, a past life, only God the Son could do that. Right. So note that point. When we're talking to people about these things, again, Complicated topics require explanations, but also noting approaching the text without understanding complicated topics means you're probably going to miss a few details. What this individual is doing, Yari, and for those of you listening, maybe if you're unfortunate enough to also be following his blog, is to be aware of those gaps in his understanding and approach to Scripture. Okay, since Jesus is not God, how do I reconcile this passage? He himself says, this is going to stump me. It's going to stump you as well. Well, it wouldn't be as stumpy if you had considered all the variables. If you're solving a math equation and didn't copy it right, or leaving out some vital formulas, you're going to miss something. Right. But if, on the right. other hand, you're going to approach the text at face value and say, in light of everything else that I could learn about God from Scripture, these details are also important, you're not going to make these kinds of mistakes and make these blatantly false teachings. Right. So make sure that you're careful and aware of those things. When people say, well, how come Christians believe that there are more than one God? We don't. That's the first fact of the Trinity. There's one and only one God. If we believed in multiple gods, then the conflict of there being a multi uh, multiplicity, I guess is the word I'm looking for, of beings that could do the things only God could truly do, we wouldn't need to come up with a term for it. We'd just say, oh yeah, that guy's a god, that guy's a god, that guy's a god. If on the other hand you go to, for example, the Quran, and you note that, oh well, Jesus, uh, Allah, and Mary are worshipped as three gods apart from Allah, why do you believe that? Um, 
I full due respect, but whoever wrote that Quran didn't even know what Christians believed when they tried to debunk the Trinity. Yeah. If you want to assess that, let us know. But the point being made is this. You can attack a fake Trinity. That doesn't affect the real one. You could ignore That's a straw man tr- fallacy. Yep. yep. Yeah. You could ignore the Trinity. I see. I, I, I watch on Tuesdays. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Thursdays. Yeah. But um, you can ignore the Trinity, but that doesn't mean it stops existing. That just means that you're going to come to an, a conclusion with incomplete information. You can misrepresent the Trinity, but again, that would be fallacious. You want to make sure that you not only understand what you believe, but recognize the consequences when you understand why that's a vital belief. Yeah. And it leads to literally worshiping a fake Jesus who will cease to be God and wasn't always. Yeah, and uh, inevitably when we have a conversation about the Trinity and and uh, the, the passage that was brought up in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, and, uh, and uh, verse, uh, I think where it gets controversial, is uh, in verse 27, it says, For he has put all things under his feet. When he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now, those who deny the doctrine of the Trinity will say, well, wait a minute, how can God uh, be in subjection to God? How will we respond to that? Well, the same way that I would be as a human in subjection to you. It doesn't make me less human to submit to you as my father and my boss or my pastor. It simply describes our relationship. If God the Father, that's a relational term, you're not a father without a son, relates to his son through a submitted relationship, that makes sense. But we also note, because God the Son (laughs) is unique, he doesn't have a beginning, there wasn't a point where the Father brought the Son into the world, or in this heretic's case, made the Son the first person in his divine family, then we get off into the woods. On the other hand, I realize this is a relational term, not an ontological, or talking about my origin term, then I avoid that mistake. Yeah, and maybe an illustration will help you here, you know, as far as understanding this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 because cultists love to go there and say, see, Jesus isn't God. Uh, He is going to hand all authority uh, over to the Father at this time, so he must be less than God. Well, here's an illustration that might help you make sense. You know, uh, every now and then when I'm out of town or uh, just in the rotation that we have, especially on Wednesday nights, Sean, you get the opportunity to teach in my absence. Uh, And it's it's always a blessing for me to, to be able to do that, as well as the other guys on staff. Well, in a sense, when I ask you to teach for me here at the church, I hand over to you what you call the pulpit, or it is called the pulpit, and and what is implied there is that when the people come to listen to you, they know that I have given you the authority to stand in for me and do what I usually do, that is, share the Word of God. Now, when I come back, Uh, and you are no longer there teaching on Sunday morning, right? All that means is that authority that I gave to you was valid for a limited point in time. You then give the authority, in a sense, back to me by submitting to my teaching ministry and allowing me to go go ahead and and do my teaching thing, if you will. It's a very similar picture to what we're seeing here. It doesn't Uh, mean I cease to be a pastor, but it means I'm fulfilling that role. Or my son. Yeah, you know, but it just means that you and I have different responsibilities. And if that throws you a little bit, let me uh, give you a little uh, Bible study homework to do. If you want to see how different members of the triunity of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
uh, are all unified in a sense and purpose, but have distinct roles to play. Read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. You're going to see how the Father was the one who planned our salvation, how Jesus was the one who provided our salvation by dying for us, and how the Holy Spirit personalizes our salvation by revealing God's truth to us and sealing us into his forever family. Now notice those three members of the triunity of God are distinct in the roles that they play within our lives, but they are one in unity as God. So let us know if that helps you out, Yari. Um, follow through, different topic, but same person. Uh, is it wrong to listen to music from a church that teaches false doctrine? And how do we know that worship is biblically accurate according to Scripture? Well, you answered the second half to your question itself. Just keep it with an open Bible. But when it comes to music that's produced, and I assume you're talking about Hillsong, uh, there's, of course, going to be plenty coming along and many that have gone throughout well, the ages. Well, Bethel falls into that category as well. They teach a really radical form of prosperity doctrine and Pentecostalism that we wouldn't support. But yeah. if, on the other hand, you look at most, some of their songs are downright heretical, but most of their music, it's just music, and that needs to be taken at face value. Uh, the same is true when it comes to the sports we enjoy, the movies that we watch, the games that we play. It needs to be taken on a point-by-point -point basis determined by conscience. Is this helping or harming my relationship with God? And if you say neutral, put that in the second category, because no progress is diverting back to your flesh. When yeah. we're talking about this issue, just make sure that you're sensitive to that and saying, no, I can legitimately look at these things and realize, you know, I want to use this as an opportunity, even just in spending the time, to fellowship with people that I love, to show the heart of God. And we usually do that uh, maybe Sunday after afternoons after a uh, church service, go and watch the game together. That is godly fellowship. That can be used for redeeming the time. If you're using it to just waste time or to maybe provide a sleep aid, that's not necessarily wrong. But if, on the other hand, you're stumbled by all the political activism or the uh, you know rallies or less than savory ads that are becoming more and more popular, then you need to be aware of that as well. Yeah. You're watching a movie, you're sensitive to violence or sexual, um, you know, innuendos yeah, and all yeah. those other things sometimes it's not really an innuendo yeah. but yeah. you get the point be aware of that and uh, note and mark your sensitivity accordingly but if something can be used in a positive sense then understand that can vary from person to person make sure that you're not stumbling yourself or other people around you and there are passages that cover that yeah and, and one thing I'd, I'd just like to add to that is the question comes up okay you know with all the stuff that's come out about Hillsong and so forth should we sing Hillsong songs, uh, you know, with all the uh, uh, excesses that are involved uh, with the uh, Bethel Church and so on, should you sing Bethel songs in, in church or, or even listen to them on the radio? You know, I think, you know, first of all, Yari, I think it's great that you're aware enough that there are some serious doctrinal issues with these particular ministries. And, uh, you know, as such, uh, if they come out with some, you know, latest and greatest song that's on K-Love or you name the radio outlet, uh, you know, and you listen to it and you, you realize, oh, yeah, this is um, this is coming out of one of these, you know, uh, avenues, uh, maybe even hearing a song on the radio that was done by a Christian musician who say, at a major spiritual face plant, you know, can you be edified, in a sense, by that sort of thing? 
Well, you know, it really kind of comes down to what you're saying, Sean, is that uh, some people can and some people can't. Uh, you know, if we take a look at the, do the doctrine behind the music, I think that's a really important place to start. Uh, you know, how can you take a look at the doctrine behind music and, and be able to evaluate whether it's positive or not? You know, I always go back to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, where it says, uh, uh, verse 8, I should say, where it says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are pure, whatever things are just, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Now, if we could use that passage as kind of a biblical grid to evaluate, say, certain songs and say to ourselves, okay, is this really solid biblically? Is this, a, is this saying something that is true scripturally? Then no matter what you're singing, whether it's a hymn in church or something you hear on Christian radio, you're going to be equipped to be able to be a, a discerning spiritual consumer. And we really need to do that. And, and not just with contemporary music, uh, even with some of the uh, you know, classic hymns, if you will. Uh, I know this is sort of a hobby horse with me, but every time I hear somebody sing, I surrender all, uh, I, I, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me because I think about my life and realistically, could I say to God that I've surrendered all to Jesus, all to him I freely give? No, there are still areas I know that the Lord would want to get a hold of in my life, but he doesn't have hold of in my life. You know, and so when I've heard that song sung, you know, even Calvary Chapel circles, I find myself in my mind going, I'd sure like to surrender all. Uh, I'd sure like to surrender all, but I can't say I surrender all. So, you know, we have to be discerning about these sort of things, no matter what format these kind of songs are placed in. Are they really solidly scriptural or not? And if it is coming from a place like Bethel, if it's coming from a place like Hillsong, that definitely have some doctrinal issues and controversies going on, well then, I think we need to be doubly discerning. You know, it's one of those Acts 17.11 situations. Uh, what is that? What did, in Acts 17.11, what did they say about the Bereans that uh, caused them to be so highly esteemed in the eyes of the Scripture? Well, quick context. Paul had just moved from the church of Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, right. who only had a few weeks with Paul, and then he had to move on because the mob was after him. And when he got to Berea, he had a little bit more time with them, but note the characteristic. It notes they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, not just because they heard the word with gladness, but sought out the scriptures daily to see whether the things they were told were really so. And who was sharing that with them? The Apostle Paul. Yeah. So if the Bereans were commended for even checking up on the Apostle Paul, I think we need to really be about the business of saying, okay, uh, are these things really so? Yeah, because yeah. we're no, uh, you know, Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin circumcised the eighth day and everything he had going for him. He knew his stuff, yeah. but they made sure to note, hey, people who are, can be trusted to tell the truth can still lie. Yeah. I want to know where you got this. Yeah, and you know, and again, I would say some of the songs that have been written by people that have been involved with Bethel Ministries are really beautiful and inspiring songs. Some of the stuff that's coming out of Hillsong I think is really good. Some of it's really kind of mediocre, and some of it is really kind of bad in a sense, as far as bad theology is concerned. So, you know, just because, you know, it has a beat or a certain music style that you like, uh, you know, be careful because there's nothing that will uh, plant ideas, either for good or for ill in your heart, more 
than music. It's just amazing to me. I always uh, point this out that uh, I, I sometimes can't remember if uh, my wife Pam has asked me to bring something home uh, after work. Uh, but uh, I can quote for you, uh, word for word, probably the entire music catalog of the monkeys. So, you know, because that music makes it stick in your head. So, uh, you know, be careful about that. Uh, don't be so careful. You go, oh, I can't, I can't listen to this. Be a, a discerner of what's being said, especially in worship songs, especially in the worship songs you hear in church or, or on the radio. And you know what? If you are discerning along that line, it's a bonus for you. And this is why it's a bonus, because it's going to teach you to be, have that Berean spirit. Not be critical, but to be cautious and not just receive something because you say, well, it's on Christian radio, it must be okay, or they sang it in my church, so it must be okay. You know, make sure that you're searching the scriptures daily to find out if these things are really so, and by really so, that they line up with the entire Word of God. All right. Um, Seems like we've got a uh, oneness joining us right now. We'll clarify that in a moment. But first, I want to give some uh, time and attention to an individual who's joining us from across the pond, Mike. Uh, He wants understanding of uh, the passage in Romans where it says we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Some say the seal can be broken, others not. What's the truth? Well, other passages would conflict with that, but let's just go to the main one. Okay. Uh, and again, the, the scripture... That We've been in... sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. That's in reference to the book of Romans chapter 8, I believe. Um, it's, uh, I believe that's Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, well, he's yeah. citing Romans, okay. but uh, the point being made is there's some conflicting passages with that. The most prominent that I can think of right off the bat is, all of the fa- all that uh, the Father calls will come to me, and I will by no ways cast them out. The Father is greater than all, and none shall take them out of his yeah, hands. Yeah, the, scrip- so. the scripture I was referring to is Ephesians 1.13, where it says, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession of the praise of his glory. Right. So the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives, uh, his uh, opening our eyes to be able to understand God's truth in the first place, Mike, is uh, proof positive that we have been sealed with his spirit. And the idea of sealing in that day and age was a mark of ownership. Once you had that, uh, nobody else could take something or appropriate something. It was completely and totally protected. And so that's the, the nuance that we find in there, and a great passage on security in our walk with God. So then those who would try to twist that and say, well, seals can be broken. Do we ever see that illustration being used or that kind of concept being supported in Scripture? No, we really don't. Uh, And that's why Paul used that particular term. As a matter of fact, uh, last uh, uh, Sunday at Calvary Christian Fellowship, we talked a bit about uh, the securing of Jesus' tomb and how it was sealed with a Roman seal. And uh, the laws about an uh, unauthorized violation of a Roman seal were, were pretty strenuous. If you violated a Roman seal without permission, the penalty for that was death by crucifixion. So uh, although perhaps in certain circumstances there might be some who might try to violate a Roman seal, uh, you can see the seriousness of all of that. And that was just the Roman government. God is the one who guarantees his seal on our life will never be broken. All right. And we'll finish with this one. Um, Okay. A few passages were being brought up. And again, I don't know 
where um, this guy's coming from specifically, but I'll keep him anonymous for the sake of controversy. Uh, two passages that would suggest that only the Father is God, or only Jesus is God. Uh, John fourteen eleven, which is, again, three verses, not one. But if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He makes the claim. And then again, he says, I and the Father are one, John 10, 30. That's five verses, not one. So starting in John chapter 14, let's just again read the passage. Let's begin in verse 9, because this is a longer conversation than just one verse. Jesus speaking to Philip, who asked, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. So he's asking for what? To be shown the Father, God in all his glory, right? Right. Have I not been with you so long, and you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Now, note that's verse 9. Right. So it goes on. How uh, do you not believe that I am in the Father? Not that I am the Father? In. Yeah. Oh, okay, let's clarify. And the Father in me. Is Jesus being redundant here? No, he's speaking of his relationship with the Father. Fascinating. A the distinct word... person, right? But... Same as God. Yeah. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, not my own essence, my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me. How can you dwell within yourself? Yeah. There's already that distinction being made there. Does and, the and, works. And if you don't recognize that distinction, that passage becomes incomprehensible. Yeah. And again, that believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. And isn't this a really good illustration of uh, the danger that you come into with some culty groups that will seemingly be able to bombard you with individual passages of Scripture, but they don't provide the context. They don't read the passages that immediately follow or precede the passage because they're more interested in making a point uh, that they've already made up their mind is true, rather than allowing the Scripture to speak. But for the sake of all of your edification, we'll go over the second before the music cuts us off. John chapter 10 and verse 30 says, I and my Father are one, but that's the end of a conversation. What was a point that was being made there? One in what sense? Verse 25, Jesus said, uh, answering people who asked him, are you really the Christ? Tell us plainly. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. What started the conversation is claimed to be Christ, not the Father. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, not my name, my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Already the subject's basing on what? The followers of God. And I give them eternal life, that they may never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Then it goes on to note, no one will snatch them out of the Father's hands either. I and the Father are one. That's the point. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.